Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and today we're here with Steve Seskin. Steve Seskin is a successful songwriter who has written seven number one songs, including Grammy-nominated Grown Men Don't Cry and Don't Laugh at Me, winner of the Nashville Songwriter Association and Music Row Magazine Song of the Year. Steve's song, Don't Laugh at Me, was recorded by Peter, Paul, and Mary and became the impetus for the Operation Respect Project, a curriculum designed to teach tolerance and anti-bullying in schools. This program has been implemented in more than 30,000 schools, and Steve has performed in countless elementary schools in support of the program. Sure, um, we could do... um, This is a song uh, that I wrote with my friend Tom Douglas. I do a lot of collaboration and co-writing, and... uh, it's called Grown Men Don't Cry, and it, it a little bit of a story behind it. It came out of a book. The idea was that it was a coach of a basketball team, and the coach and the kid who was playing basketball, the teenager, were pretty close. And what happened was, in the book, he goes up for the last shot, and, you know, the team's down by one point. He gets the ball in and out. They lose the game. And the guy comes home, the kid, and his dad says, hey, you can be disappointed, but, like, stop crying. You're a man. Grown men don't cry. You know, so it's like that typical thing we're taught about. Women get to show all the range of their emotion, but if you're a man, like, suck it up. Be a man, you know. And so I always say if you read that, you could do three things. Either you could keep reading like, that's no big deal one way or another. Or I imagine you could say, that's right. I agree with that. Suck it up. Be a man. Don't cry. Or you could do what Tom did. And then when he told me that I did, because we both have sons, like, why are you telling the kid not to cry? He missed the last shot of the basketball game. Our notion was that crying, male or female, is a natural human reaction. We do it because it happens, if you get what I mean. And so we just thought, wow, what a thing to tell your son, you know, not allow him that moment of uh, just feeling really badly enough to want to cry about it. He missed the last shot. So then, then we came up with the phrase, I don't know why they say grown men don't cry, which was kind of the secret to writing this song the way we wrote it, because it stated it in a way that said, I don't know why they say grown men don't cry, because here I am doing it. It it kind of was the phrase that gave us the way we were going to write it. So we thought of situations of, you know, when might you cry? (laughs) And then I'll tell you a little more after. There's another couple of interesting things, but... shopping center and saw a little boy wrapped around the legs of his mother like ice cream melting they embraced years of bad decisions running down her face all morning I've been thinking my life is so hard and they wore everything they owned living in a car 
smoking But I just got back in my suburban and drove away Say grown men don't cry talking, watching the sun go down, but it's just a dream. He was a slave to his job and he couldn't be around. And there's so many things I want to say to him, but I just put a rose on his grave and I talk to the wind. I don't know why they say grown man. kids, my wife, everything I hold dear in my life. We say grace, thank the Lord, got so much to be thankful for. Then it's up the stairs and off to bed. My little boy says, haven't had my story yet. When he lifts his head up off his pillow and says, I love you, Dad. I don't know why they say grown men don't cry. I don't know why they say grown men don't cry. mind if I take a tissue? No, go for it. Take a tissue, Doug. You know, the thing about that song that's interesting is we wrote the first two verses in like, I don't know, a day or two of getting together for five or six hours. Because if you remember, I said we started with this like, when might a grown man cry? You know, so the first verse is kind of about other people's pain. You see this woman in the parking lot, they're living in their car. And, and it's a little bit of like, uh, I call it, you know, uh, their book for the grace of God go I. Like one, he's crying because he didn't help him. He was in a hurry. He was going somewhere. Like we, you know, we all face that situation where we, we see somebody in need and uh, sometimes you are so moved and other times you're running to something and, and the second verse is all about really me and, and my dad. My dad was never around. And when he was, it was almost worse than when he wasn't. But that line in it that says, um, there's so many things I want to say to him. I just put a rose on his grave and I talked to the wind. is totally autobiographical because I, 
I left New York when I was uh, 1972, so I was 20 years old. And my dad died at, in 79 at age 57. And for probably the last five years of his life, we didn't really talk. You know, we had had that falling out kind of deal. We always said we were going to, like, get it back together, have that, you know, make amends, all that. And just we never did. And I got a call that he had had his third heart attack and just was gone, you know. And I stood at his gravesite in Queens, New York, and had the little talk with him. So that's what that line about put a rose on his grave and I talked to the wind because I couldn't talk to him anymore, you know. But the interesting thing about that song is when we finished the first two verses, we thought, okay, you know, there's that instrumental bridge where it kind of changes keys. And I said, we need one more verse. What else could happen that a grown man would cry about? And we talked about it for days. And we were, I don't know what's going to happen. You either have to get sick yourself or I don't know. And it never occurred to us till like three days later, wait, the first two verses are kind of tears of sorrow. Why can't the last one be like tears of joy? And it's so it's when you, I'm sitting here with my kids and my wife, I put my son to bed. He goes, I haven't had my story yet. Hey, Dad, I love you. So when the guy goes, I don't know why they say grown men don't cry. It's like you you crying because it's good tears. You know, your kid said something that, you know, really resonated with you or told them they told you they loved you whatever it would be my point is always I don't care what kind of verse we would have written about tears of sorrow it wouldn't have been as good as making that switch to tears of joy so I always you know I did a songwriting workshop in Park City last weekend and I always tell songwriters sometimes you're looking to change the wrong thing like when they're talking about rewriting or working on a lyric I said well sometimes you need to like just work on a little minute piece of a lyric and fix one line or one word. Other times you need to throw out the baby in the bathwater because we had three other verses that we wrote that we got rid of because we wanted to make that switch to tears of joy and all those other ones we wrote were tears of sorrow and they just didn't feel right, you know? So to me, that last verse makes that song, you know? The flip. Do you remember if it was a windy day when you visited your dad's grave in Queens? Oh yeah, it was actually. Yeah, I do remember. A long time ago. You remember what time of year it was? It was a spring day, but it wasn't a pretty spring day. Now, your writing partner was credited with witnessing the first verse sort of inspirational instance of the homeless mother with her mascara running down That's true. her face. So my co-writer, Tom Douglas, had the idea for the first verse. And the idea for the first verse is kind of universal. It was just all painting a picture of somebody who's hard on their, you know, down on their luck and ha going through hard times and how you're coming upon them and what you're thinking. And the second verse, again, is about my dad. The third verse is more about both of us because we both raise daughters and sons. And so it's a, funny that we didn't think about that earlier on, but once we thought about turning that around to a positive thing, we just looked at our lives and said, yeah, sometimes I have a tear in my eye because my kid came home from school with an A. And So, yeah, Tom Douglas thought of that idea, the first verse, and then I chimed in. Interestingly enough, though, the second verse about the dad was the first verse we wrote. So we started out just kind of vamping. I'm sitting here on the porch, and it's my dad. And we realized that, 
well, that can't be the first verse. Because if you end up at your dad's grave talking to the wind, where are you going to go from there? Huh. It gets pretty serious too soon. So the first verse is serious, but it's about someone else's troubles. And the second verse is more about your troubles. So there's an arc to it, you know. Very interesting. And so when it was finished, how did you find the voice that you wanted to sing it? So Tom, Tom Douglas, when we finished the song, Tom is a really good singer. I think of myself as a really good singer too, but yet Tom has this folksy little, there's something about the way Tom sings a song. And if you don't know who Tom Douglas is, I mean, he wrote lots of songs that, that you would know. He did the demo in this case. So he sang, he did like a piano vocal. This hardly ever happens in the Nashville world of pitching songs. But the first person we played it for was Tim McGraw's, not for him, but for his producer and his office. You know, they, all these stars have, like we call them gatekeepers, because Tim McGraw doesn't want me calling him up three times a week. Going, Tim, I have a new song for you. I mean, he'd literally kill himself. If, if, if every songwriter in town had his number... It'd be like crazy. So they have like these gatekeepers. So you have to get it through that first person or second, you know, a couple of people who like it enough to then play it for him. So the average uh, superstar, which Tim McGraw would count as, 35, 40 million records, they have like two, three, four, five people as gatekeepers who are listening to, and I'm not exaggerating, a thousand or more songs a year to come up with 10 to 12 songs that he might want to sing. And so they only play him out of the, now I'm guessing on this, but out of the thousand songs, they're playing him maybe less than 100. Although this was early in his career, earlier. Uh, it was seven years in, so it was about 2000, yeah. you know. And so you're playing for the gatekeepers, and how do they react? Well, in this case, one of them liked it. One of them didn't like it that much. I mean, that song, if, he you, was wrong. if you think about it musically, is not like sound like it does not sound like a big old hit. It doesn't have a chorus. It's got verses, you know, with that phrase at the end. I don't know why they say grow men don't cry. It's not a particularly commercial subject, men crying, you know. So what happened was, thank God, one of the gatekeepers said, you know, I think Tim would like that song, mainly because of the second verse. So without going into the whole story, if you know a little bit about Tim McGraw, you would know that he did not grow up with the name McGraw even, that Tug McGraw, who was a pitcher for the New York Mets, is Tim McGraw's biological dad. And his mom, I don't know the exact story, but his mom had a little, you know, weekend romance. I don't even know all the details. All I know is that his mom kind of raised him initially as a single mom. And then she met this other guy. They got married, but they decided not to tell Tim as a youngster, as a three-year-old or four-year-old, about what happened. Because it makes sense. You wouldn't go into all that with <laughs> And then when he was like, again, I'm guessing 12, 13, 14, he found a birth certificate somewhere in the house, like in the back of a chest of drawers, and it said McGraw on it from the hospital, you know? And again, I'm guessing at all these, don't, don't quote me on all these facts, but, but that's basically the story. So he grew up 
till he was a teenager thinking this other guy who apparently raised him just fine and you know that that part's a happy part of the story but when he found when Tim found out wait a minute this other guy was my dad you know he apparently contacted him tug and said where you been all my life like how could you have you know helped father me as a child and then you're going to have nothing to do with my life and they had a lot of falling out over it and then eventually they became very close and when tug mcgraw died tim was at his bedside but you can see why he liked that second verse because even the, and i always tell other songwriters there's nothing in that verse we wrote that's about Tug McGraw or my dad was a pitcher for the new. No, but that line about it was sitting on the porch. Oh, but it's just a dream because he was never around. I wrote that about my dad. The point is, whatever those words suggest, emotionally, Tim McGraw latched onto them because of his story and not finding out Tug McGraw was his dad till later on. Do you feel like the song has helped you get closure with your dad? That's an interesting question. You know, it's interesting. I've written a lot of songs about my dad and growing up, and and that one is easy for me to sing without getting too emotional. Some of them are not so easy, you know, because I had a really rough situation as a kid. I don't want to get too into it, but yeah, you know, my dad had his demons. He was a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde sort of guy, and everybody who knew him like during the day thought he was the best guy ever, and he was. But when he drank too much, uh, he turned into the other side, you know. So I have some other ones that are a little more emotionally, like, meant to help me kind of deal with uh, Got it. my situation. We'll, we'll deal with those in another podcast. Sure. On the melody, is there any story behind how you came up with the actual music or you know, is that first or second? Uh, uh, sort of at the same time. And, and this song is what I call a lyric-driven song. So if you notice, I'm playing the same chords except for that bridge. You know, it's very simple. And it's a, it delivers a lot of lyric at one time. I pulled into a shopping center and saw a little boy wrapped around the legs of his mother. I think there's 26 syllables in that line. That's a lot of syllables. So it's a story song kind of thing. And the music is meant to accommodate that, but to also stay out of the way. So I always say nobody's going to like walk on Main Street here and hum. It's like not the greatest melody I've ever written. And yet it serves the song. It delivers a lot of lyric. And the part I think people remember melodically the most is, I don't know why they say Grown men don't cry. And that's really the part you're supposed to remember, you know? So we just kind of did it at the same time, which is sort of how I do it usually. I start with a lyric idea most often, but I'm adding music to the mix, like, pretty quick. Thank you, Steve. Uh, this has been really a treat and a pleasure. Well, and, thank and you. Thank you for all the work you do in our elementary schools around the country. You want to talk about that just a, just a little bit? I mean, I, I, um, I wrote a song that we didn't get to do today, but it's called Don't Laugh at Me. And it was, tur it was turned into a, um, a curriculum for schools. Uh, Mark Wills recorded it back in 1999, and then Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I started out visiting schools to do assembly programs just to talk about you know, respect and kindness with kids and 
mainly because of that song. And I still do that. I've probably been to over a thousand schools in the last 20 years, something I never did before that song. So a song can take you a lot of places. But about 15 years ago, I decided it'd be more fun to write songs with students. And I started a thing called kidswritesongs.org, if you want to check it out. And we've written well over a thousand songs. Uh, I go to schools and I spend the whole day working with four classrooms of kids. And by the end of the day, we have a song here in Park City. I've been here all week at four different schools and we've written four songs. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's like the, my favorite thing to do these days. So, Steve, what song would you like to uh, talk about next? Well, I thought I would do a song that is uh, interesting in that I haven't sung this song in a long time, or hadn't, I should say, sung this song in a long time till about two months ago when someone requested it at a show that I did. And I write a lot of songs. I write, I don't know, 40 to 80 songs a year. I don't sing all of them. Sometimes it's like, I don't think I'm the right singer for that song, or it's a little too country for me to sing, or whatever it is. So this became one of those songs that I, I really never sang, and I was so glad that it was a hit record for Kenny Chesney, but I just never sang it. And somebody said, you should do your best song at a show. And I said, okay, what's my best song? All I need to know. I said, you're kidding me. I hadn't sung it in like 20 years, you know. And I sang it. I got all the words right. And I had a good time singing it. I was like, I finished it thinking like, why don't I ever sing this song? You know, I wrote this with my friend Mark Allen Springer. And, you know, it's a simple love song. I don't write too many of those. But we wrote this about our respective wives. Um, and it's called That's All I Need to Know. With a little luck, this old truck will get me home today. With a little more, I'll still have this job tomorrow. Weatherman says, wet weekend, he just might be right. But rain or shine, he'll be mine tonight. And that's all I need to know In a world where most things come and go I'll always have you to hold That's all I need to know Now heaven knows I ain't even close to being God's gift to win. But in your arms, I feel like I am. I don't know it all. I sure can't solve the problems of the human race. But I know how to bring a smile to your face. And that's all I In a world where most things come and go
say it one more time You will forever be mine That's all I need to know In a world where most things come and go So when you write a song, a great love song like that, when do you show it to your wife? <laughs> and how did she react? Well, I, you know, usually, by the way, it, that, that other Tim McGraw story about how the first person we played it for recorded it, that hardly ever happens. So I play this for my wife long before Kenny Chesney recorded it, and she loves it. You know, I've written a lot of songs about it. We'll celebrate our 38th wedding anniversary, uh, September 21st. So we've been hanging out a long time. But this particular song, it was kind of funny because it's, you know, I'm an artist and a creative person first, but I'm also kind of not an idiot. I don't always write songs in exactly the voice that I would write, meaning that I would never say, with a little luck, this old truck will get me home today. With a little more, I'll still have this job tomorrow. Weatherman says, wet weekend. That's kind of like a country sort of lyric. But you could picture a guy in Arkansas who's driving a truck. or You get what I mean? My wife would look at me like I was crazy if I said, with a little luck, this old truck. But I'm in Nashville writing songs for country singers I need to be sensible about that. So the kind of imagery that I'm putting in that song is for a common man, kind of country guy, Southern. And that's what a lot of the songwriters in Nashville, they come from all walks of life. Some of them are that guy, and others of them have two PhDs, and they lived, grew up in New York. <laughs> you know what I mean? But they're still going to try and write like that guy would sound. Because you know, it's a good time to say this. When you write a song, it's not about you. You're not writing the song for you, the writer. It might help you get through something, like when you ask me how that, you know, Grown Men Don't Cry helped me through my, my dad's death. You know, there's a little bit of that, but really it's all about the audience. So when I write a song, I'm writing a song for you, meaning any you, the audience, to hear and be moved by it or think it's funny, but it's all about the audience. So I'm hoping in that song that anybody who's had like a long-term relationship is going, that's right. That's all I need to know. No matter what happens to me in this world, because God knows life throws you a lot of curves. I have you and that's solid. And I'm hoping other people have that you, either that or they go, oh, I love this song, but you know, my wife died like five years ago, and it makes them teary because they don't have that person anymore. 
or they've been in 16 bad relationships in a row and they're like wondering like what would it be like to feel that way about somebody <laughs> you get what i mean everybody's got a way in but it's not about me the writer it's about the listener so this is not precisely about your wife she was more the muse to inspire you but it's not of course right not in the you. verses but but in the chorus like hey, that's all I need to know. In a world where most things come and go, I'll always have you to hold, and that's all I need to know. That's about my wife and, and Mark Allen Springer's wife. And So that's the secret to 38 years of marital bliss. Uh, yeah. Or for you. If you say so. <laughs> for you. <laughs> marital bliss takes a lot of hard work to achieve. But anyway, I really like that song, and I've started singing it again. So how did it get to Kenny Chesney? That's a funny story. I don't know if I should say this. <laughs> oh, well. So I had written a song with my friend Alan Chamblin called Life's a Dance. And some of you out there might know it. Life's a dance. You learn as you go. Sometimes you lead. Sometimes you follow. And so on. And a guy named John Michael Montgomery recorded that song. And it was a really big hit for him. It was his first hit. You know, it was on the charts. It sold lots of records. And... So often when you get lucky as a songwriter, you kind of go back to the well soon after thinking, oh, he's going to like want more of my songs. In fact, I'd like to thank John Michael Montgomery because he not only recorded Life's a Dance, but a song of mine called No Man's Land and one called If You've Got Love. So I had three top five records with him and I like him very much. However, when we finished that song, we said, oh, my God, the first person we should get this to would be John Michael Montgomery because he was hot, you know, selling lots of records. Let's get it to him. So we sent it to Kentucky through his manager. And we said, please let us know as soon as you can, because we just wrote this and we want to get it out in the town. It's not easy getting songs cut, by the way. I don't make want to make it sound like it is. It's super competitive. But you'll never succeed if you don't try sort of thing. So it's a lot of like throwing spaghetti at the wall. You have a new song, you're playing it for everybody you could possibly think of that might like it, hoping that one person says, yeah. So anyway, we get it to John Michael Montgomery's manager, and we hear back about three days later, and the message is, John really likes the song, but he's wondering if you could do a rewrite on the first line of the second verse, because he doesn't feel like he can sing that line. Mark Allen Springer and I are looking at each other saying, the second verse, first line, what line is that? Oh, oh, heaven knows I ain't even close to being God's gift to women. Well, you know, the only reason you could not sing that line is because you think you are. And so we sat there for a minute, and, you know, John Michael Montgomery is this tall, strapping, good-looking guy, you know. He probably is God's gift to whatever. We sit there and we're like, oh, my God. Like, that's like our favorite line in the whole song because it's got a charm to it. It's followed by the line, but in your arms, I feel like I am. I mean, it's, it's just like the perfect. So I'm happy to tell you that we stuck to our guns. We were going to call his bluff. We sent back a message that said, no, we can't change that line. And I'm like sitting there thinking, there's like hundreds of thousands of dollars that are slipping through my fingers right now. <laughs> you know, but then I gambled. I said, he's going to say, it. OK, 
I'll sing it that way. No. He says, not singing that line. I said, okay. And then I thought, well, who else could we get this to? You know, and Kenny Chesney had just started his career. I want to be careful how I say this. He's a little shorter than John Michael Montgomery. He has a little less hair. You know, interestingly enough, three years later, he was on the cover of People magazine as one of the 25 most sexy men in the world. Okay, but in 1993, when we were thinking like Alan Jackson, you know, the the tall drink of water kind of guy. And then we thought, Kenny Chesney, let's try it with him. And the thing is, he loved the song. And one of his favorite lines in the song is, heaven knows I ain't even close to being God's gift to woman. So the song ended up in the right hands. And it was a big hit for him. And uh, there you go. So it's easier at the beginning of an artist's career. You might have went to school with them or you're just hanging out at the same bar or playing golf with them or whatever it is. And it's easy to hand them a tape or back in the day. As soon as somebody gets to be a big star, they put up a little wall behind, you know, between you and them. And rightly so. And the melody on this one come to you at the same time? Yeah, kind of. To me, this is a bit of a classic country melody. The beginning of it is very, you know, and then the chorus is like a big kind of ballad. That's all I need to know. It just sort of came to me. Melodies just happen that way for me. I do work on them, uh, but a lot of it is instinctual of just like, what do I want to say here? You know, and what do I want the music to say to accommodate what the emotional meaning of the words are? So the song Don't Laugh at Me, I wrote with my good friend Alan Shamblin, who's written so many songs you'd know, The House That Built Me, you know, by Miranda Lambert, who we talked about earlier. I Can't Make You Love Me If You Don't, Bonnie Ray, And he's like my best co-writer in that we've written 138 songs together in 30 years. And we just, like, we're best friends and we write a lot of songs. And there's kind of nothing I haven't talked about with Alan. Everything my wife knows, Alan knows. So... One day we were just talking about our kids. He and his wife have three kids, and my wife and I have one son. But one thing they all had in common was that they'd all had problems here and there in school with people teasing them or making fun of them or them doing it. The whole bullying situation that is present in our schools, whether we like it or not. And I think when I was growing up, people just went, oh, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, just part of life, you know. And then it just started getting more and more serious. It's connected to school shootings. Um, Like, we can't just ignore it. You know, all of us want our kids to go to school into a safe situation. And that doesn't mean just physically safe. It also means heart safe, emotionally safe. If a kid's going to learn at school and that's why they're there, it kind of helps that they're in a situation where they feel pretty good about being there. And, you know, things happen, but I think it's important for schools to do everything they can to be on top of this kind of thing and and to be proactive about it. So when we wrote this song, we were just kind of remembering our own childhood and thinking about our kids. And who knew that it was going to be, you know, turned into this whole program, a curriculum for schools. So briefly, a guy named Mark Wills recorded this out of Nashville then when Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded it, they started doing it at conferences for teachers. And and then uh, the day after Columbine happened, which, you know, 
was the first school shooting really of note. That's the day that Peter Yarrow called me the next day and said, we need to make this song a curriculum for schools. Because the two kids at Columbine, by the way, not to forgive what they did, but they were both ostracized. And, you know, there was a reason they ended up going off and, and doing the horrible thing that they did. So long story short, Peter is hard to say no to. And he called me up and said, would you guys donate the song to a curriculum for schools? Not all uses of the song, because we didn't do that, but for that usage. And we said, absolutely, if, if you think it could help. And then he started raising money and, you know, started a foundation called Operation Respect, and which is a curriculum that is uh, dedicated to making schools safe places and kindness, respect, friendship, community service, all these good things that schools are already trying to impress upon their kids. I'm not bragging because I didn't do this, but that curriculum is in over 35,000 schools in America. It's in 17 other countries, Croatia, Taiwan, Israel. In Israel, by the way, if you ever want to check out, it's called the Voices of Peace Choir. And there's 75 Palestinian kids and 75 Israeli kids singing this song in Hebrew, Arabic, and English back and forth, which is pretty like chilling, pretty amazing. And so this song has taken me all, all over the world. I would have never started the school programs that I do had it not been for Peter starting that foundation. So uh, it's called Don't Laugh at Me, and I'll uh, be happy to sing it for you. glasses, the one they call the geek, a little girl who never smiles, I've got braces on my teeth, and I know how it feels to cry myself to sleep, and I'm that kid on every playground who's always chosen last, I'm the one who's slower than the others in my class, you don't have to be my friend. But is it too much to ask? Don't laugh at me. Don't call me names. Don't get your pleasure from my pain. In God's eyes, we're all the same. Someday we'll all have perfect wings. Don't laugh at me. beggar on the corner you pass me on the street I wouldn't be out here begging if I had enough to eat don't think I don't notice that our eyes never meet I was born a little different I do my dreaming from this chair I pretend it doesn't hurt me when people point and stare there's a simple way to show me just how much you care. Don't laugh at me. Don't call me names. Don't get your pleasure from my pain. In God's eyes, we're all the same. Someday we'll all have perfect ways. Don't let
Don't call me names Don't get your pleasure From my pain In God's eyes We're all the same Someday we'll all have perfect wings Don't laugh at me Don't laugh at me Beautiful. So that might be the first anti-bullying song ever written. Hard to know what came yeah, first. I don't know. There, but where did it come from? But it, it, it came again from our kids' situations with, that our kids were going through. But then we talked about, Alan and I talked about growing up. He was kind of short. He lived in Texas, and people used to call him names. And, and I got glasses when I was seven years old, and I was always on the heavy side. Look, I don't know a person on earth that doesn't have a story about when somebody ragged on him or was teasing him or calling him names. I figure like everybody is uh, could possibly be subject to that. So, you know, even if you use the beautiful blonde girl in your high school, well, people think she's dumb. Well, they say, oh, she's she's beautiful, but not much up here. Well, how do you know? Have you ever even talked to her? So... It really runs the gamut. When Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded that song, by the way, they said that when they first heard it, they'd been singing together for 45 years, but they'd never had a conversation about being bullied when they grew up. And that song created a dialogue for them to say, hey, what happened when, you know, Mel Paul Stuckey and Mary Travers and... You know, they suddenly were, they knew each other so well, but they suddenly had this uh, opportunity to talk to each other because of that song. And to me, that's a, another side of what songs are about, to create conversation, to inspire people, to make them cry, to make them laugh, to make them think. You know, but also the other side of songs, and I don't write too many of these, but I also value a song that just makes me want to dance makes me want to move. There are some great songs that are just fun songs, a little hook, you know, let's get it started and whatever. I mean, there's, I just tend as a writer to be more apt to write things that are going to pull at your heartstrings. That's my goal. So you and Alan finished the song. It's unlike any song that's been written in terms of the subject matter in many respects. And so how do you decide what voice is the right voice for this song. Oh, well, this is a good opposite to the Tim McGraw story. We finished this song and everybody in town passed on it. Garth Brooks, John Michael Montgomery, Kenny Chesney, all the people that, this was already in 1999. I'd had a lot of hits as a writer. Everybody, nah, nah, we don't want to sing a song about it. Don't laugh at me, don't call me that. I'm serious, nobody bit. And there was this artist named Mark Wills and he heard this song and just fell in love with it. I'm a big believer of like the right artist finds the right song. Now, sometimes it's hard because there's all those gatekeepers again, you know. And I remember a story where Mercury Records, they were fine with him recording it, but they didn't want it to be a single. They didn't want it to come out on the radio. They thought, well, this will just be an album cut. And they went up to Kentucky, apparently, to hear Mark in a concert. And he did that song, and again, I'm not bragging or anything, I wasn't there, but the whole place stood up. It was like a five-minute standing ovation, and one of the groups of people there in the front row was 25 wheelchairs with people with disabilities. 
that's when the, the record company, you know, they like to just make us think they know everything in terms of marketing and what's, you know, that's when they looked at each other and, well, maybe there should be a single. Like, look at that reaction to it. And it was a number one record, but it could have easily never came out. I've been on both sides of that equation. You know, I've had songs where I thought, well, this is a big old hit and it never came out. You know, I have a song, last thing I'll say is a Reba McIntyre just recorded, like now, as in September here of 2019. It just came out. Alan Shamblin and I wrote it 21 years ago. And it's called Cactus in a Coffee Can. It's a long story song. It's kind of sad. I don't think it'll ever be on the radio, but you never know. What if Reba decides, I want this on the radio? It would probably happen, you know. So again, a lot of that's out of our hands. We just write the songs and hope they find good homes. And we write a ton of songs. I don't care what songwriter you have on this blog show. We write a ton of songs that don't get recorded, that don't have the interest level. I've written 2,500 songs, and I've had about 100 of them recorded. Some of the songs that haven't been recorded are like my favorite songs. You never know. Well, Don't Laugh at Me has turned into a worldwide movement, and for that we thank you, Steve. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Thank among, thank you. I'm, I'm glad of that. Among the 500 songs you've written, that one has changed the world. All right. Uh, we got one more. Well, let's do one more song. Sure. How about No Doubt About It? Okay. Well, that that's another love song, um, but uh, has a really interesting story, two interesting stories. This is one of the simpler songs I've ever written. And, you know, when you do a lot of co-writing, which I do, you keep ideas like on your phone, on your notes section, and you kind of run them by other writers. Like, what do you think of this? So no doubt about it is certainly a cliché. And one week, like four people said it to me, like just in my regular course of my life. Somebody, I live in San Francisco. Somebody says, no doubt about it. The Giants are winning the pennant this year. Or death and taxes, no doubt about it, whatever. People just kept saying, no doubt about it. And I thought, I better write this down. You know, like all these people, there must be some reason all these people are saying that to me. And I'd run it by um, co-writers and they'd say, well... And I didn't know how I was going to write it. Like, I had no idea. What are we going to do with that, you know? And co-writers would say, it's kind of a cliche, don't you think? And I'd say, yeah. What else you got? Which is a typical co-writing exchange. It's like, no, let's work on something else. That doesn't excite me. For like a year, I'd run it by people. And then one day, I ran it by my friend John Scott Sherrill, who I ended up writing it with. I said, here's a song idea. It's called No Doubt About It. And he said, man. That's great. And I remember sitting there thinking, really? Why is it so great? Like, explain it to me. And he said, and keep in mind, the guy I wrote this with is like, well, I call him the love machine. Because every song he writes has a baby in it, darling, sugar, honey pie. Like, sometimes there's four of those things in one song kind of thing. So every song he writes pretty much has a girl in it. I write songs like Grown Men Don't Cry, Don't Laugh at Me, like about all kinds of other stuff, because that's what I do. But occasionally I go down this road and, and I thought, well, maybe he's the right guy to write this with. He seems excited about it. And he says, what if the couple isn't, they're in love and they're so much in love that there's like no doubt about it 
And the first thing we came up with was, we were meant to be together. Ain't no doubt about it. So he says, what if they were meant to be together? You know, like it was ordained. Like they were like, and we started thinking about, they were so much meant to be together, just like other things that belong together. And the first thing we, your instinct would be to think of like other romantic sort of, like the flowers need the rain, like the moon, the tide and the moon, like the stars and the, and you know, uh, I don't know about anybody else, but for me, that makes me want to throw up a little bit. It's a little too really, you know, uh, sappy kind of deal. And so we were just about ready to give up the idea. I said, ah, I don't know. We need to think about it. Maybe we can find another way to write it. And it was a Saturday morning, and I was in Nashville at the publishing company that we both wrote at. And there was nobody else there. Because since I don't live in Nashville, when I'm there, I work like seven days a week. I mean, I'm there to write songs. It was a Saturday, and we go downstairs from the writing rooms to make a cup of coffee. And we go looking around the kitchen area there for a cup. And for whatever reason, there are no cups. There are no porcelain cups. There are no paper cups. There are no cups. And all of a sudden, he says to me, you know, we better go to the store because what good is coffee without a cup? Because if you think about it, you're not going to stand there and pour the coffee. If you could see a video now, you'd see my hand pouring the pot into my mouth of hot coffee. You're not going to do that. We went and got some cups and we came back and wrote. Just like every lock got to have a key. Every river goes looking for the sea. And when you plant a seed, it reaches for the sky just the way it is. Nobody wonders why my coffee needs a cup. Hell, it ain't much good without it. We were meant to be together, baby. Ain't no doubt about it. Like a hammer and a nail, socks and shoes. We go hand in hand like a rhythm and blues. What good is a man? Hasn't got a dream About as good as a car With no gasoline You're the one I'm dreaming of Got to have your love Can't live without it We were meant to be together Ain't no doubt about it Something was missing Making me blue All I Just like every lock, got to have a key. Every river goes looking for the sea. And when you plant a seed, it reaches for the sky. That's just the way it is. Girl, with you and I, like coffee needs a cup. It ain't much good without it. We were meant to be together, baby.
So uh, kind of a funny story about that song, which is so weird. But we wrote that in 1995, and a guy named Neil McCoy recorded it. It was his first number one record as an artist. It was actually my first number one record as a writer because I had those other songs before, but they had gone to like number two, number three, number four, and you don't get a number two party. Like when you have a number one record as a writer, you get a number one party, no number three. No. And so it was it was really cool. And um, Neil McCoy came to our, the number one party and all that was great. And I hear through the grapevine from somebody that when Blake Shelton and Miranda Lambert got married, their first dance at their wedding was this song. That they used, they were friends with Neil McCoy, and Neil McCoy came to their wedding, and at the wedding, the first dance was, Just like every lock, we were meant to be together. They sang this song. And I thought, wow, that's really flattering. Out of all the songs in the world, they chose our song to sing, to play, I mean. And I thought, man, if I ever, I don't know Blake Shelton or Miranda Lambert. And I said, if I ever get a chance, I'm going to thank them for using this song. I thought, that's really sweet. And then like another well, five years go by or so, I'm busy. I have a lot going on. And somebody else mentions that to me. And I thought, darn it, I'm going to like take care of this. So this this is, goes to show that I don't like read People magazine or like I don't like keep up with all the gossip, you know. So I didn't have any way to get in touch with uh, Blake or Miranda, but I did know Blake's producer. His name is Scott Hendricks. And I called up Scott Hendricks. And I said, Scott, it's Steve. Listen, I've always wanted to thank Blake for like using No Doubt About It as the first dance at their wedding. Now, now, you have to know that Scott is a pretty talkative guy. Silence on the other end of the line. Nothing. I said, Scott, are you there? He goes, yeah. I said, well, is there a way I can get in touch with Blake? I want to make sure he didn't think I was trying to get Blake a song. That would probably be the case. I said, I just want to thank him. He goes, I don't think that would be a good idea. And I said, why not? Do you like not read the papers? Or So, of course, Blake and Miranda had gotten divorced like that, like six months earlier. And I just didn't know about it. And I said, oh, I don't think that would be a good idea. Like he's saying, you're Mr. Window. <laughs> of thanking him or them for using that song. It wouldn't work anymore. And every once in a while now when I sing that song, in the bridge where I go, something was missing, making me blue. All I ever needed was you. I now sing, something was missing, making me blue. All I ever needed was you and Gwen. Yeah, that's how I get and so on. <laughs> People crack up because it's pretty funny. But anyway, there you go. Yeah. So Neil McCoy made this his title song on that album. Yes. How did it get to Neil? How did uh, did you pitch anybody else first? Was Actually, this was pretty much pitched to Neil. His producer was a guy named Barry Beckett who's since passed on. But Barry Beckett came out of the whole um, Muscle Shoals, kind of R&B meets Blue-Eyed Soul, that kind of world. 
And we just felt like this song was kind of fit into that. You know, just like every life. That, I can't quite do it justice, you know, as a singing style. But it just had that groove. And Barry Beckett loves songs like that. So we played it for him, and he played it for Neil. Neil's from Texas, and he just loved that song. And interestingly enough is the publishing company where I wrote had three hits on that album. The song that came out after No Doubt About It was called Wink. All she gotta do is just give me that wink, which is way more up-tempo kind of commercial than this song. And I remember when we got the word that, because this is like record company business stuff, you know, and we don't have a say in that usually. They never call me and say, uh, should your song be the first single? And I'm like, yeah, it should be. We were thinking, oh, please don't make this song, our song, the first single, because Neil hadn't had a hit yet. If you remember, I said it was his first number one. And I said, this song, it's not a ballad, but it's kind of like, it's like every line. And Wink was like a stone cold, like commercial number one sounding song. We thought they should put them out in that order, Wink, and then No Doubt About It. Well, we get the word that No Doubt About It's the first single. And we were like, what? That's going to that's gonna backfire. And it was the number one record. So was Wink after it. So what do I know? And, and so do you know any reason why they chose your song over Wink? No, I, I really never found out what their strategy was. But in this case, they were right. I mean, one other, like, quick story about Back to Grown Men Don't Cry is Tim McGraw chose that to be his first single. And all I'm going to tell you is because he, he really loved the song, he loved that it was about his dad, you know, in his mind it was about his dad. That also is not scream off the page as the next big country hit. I am certain that the people at his record company were not thrilled when he walked in and said, I want Grown Men Don't Cry to be the first single, they're like, what? Huh? You know, and yet at that point, Tim McGraw had sold like 28 million records. So they're not going to say, no, Tim, we don't want that. You know, so I got lucky in that case, because here's the thing. In the Neil McCoy story, again, he had never had a hit, whereas Tim McGraw had already had 25 hits. So an artist of Tim McGraw's stature, he can put out whatever he wants, and radio is going to play it. And so in that sense, we got lucky that that song, which I love, that it got recorded by an artist of the stature of Tim McGraw because it's a song that could easily still be sitting in my catalog, even though I think it's one of my best songs. We just got lucky that an artist like that decided he wanted to record it and demanded that it was the first single. And it was a number one record. And we had a number one party. And you know what Tim McGraw did at that party? One last thing. He held up a yellow legal pad with a pen attached to it. And he said, I want to thank Tom Douglas and Steve Seskin for writing this song, Grown Men Don't Cry. And if you guys don't mind, I'd also like to take a minute to thank all the songwriters in Nashville who start every day with this, a blank yellow legal pad and a pen and come up with a, an idea for a song, get out their guitar and write the great songs without which I would not have a career. That's Tim McGraw talking. And that's super cool because I'll just say that not every artist 
who doesn't write songs, who need songs to make their career what it is. Not every artist feels so moved to recognize, you know, you mentioned the word ego before. There are some big egos, and, and it's Neil McCoy, also the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet, down to earth. Tim McGraw, just super sweet. Faith Hill, his wife. If you saw him walking down the street in Park City, they'd say hi to you. Like they're, they're like regular people, you know, as much as they're superstars. And uh, personally, that means a lot to me, you know. So not every song on the first week of release hits number one. What's the feeling like when you get a song that goes to number one the first time? Oh, it's 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 fabulous. I mean, what it means on the charts with radio it means that song is being played on more radio stations more often than any other song that week, at least in that genre. So pop has a different, you know, uh, barometer. But it's a great feeling. It, I mean, as a songwriter who also sings, I play in like anywhere from 50 to 200 seat places, you know, coffee houses and cafes and house concerts. And, and I love that. But the notion that Tim McGraw did Grown Men Don't Cry and that 3 million people bought the record, that's 3 million people that are hearing my work via him. And that means a lot. That's way more to, than I'm ever going to get to, just given how my life has turned out. In, I, don't, I wouldn't want to be Tim McGraw, to tell you the truth. I mean, most writers I know, like I said earlier, they love just that, yeah, I wrote that song kind of thing, but they wouldn't want to be on a stage every night laying it down, putting it out. That's a big responsibility. And the people that do it were born to do it, I think, in general. The people who try it, who were not born to do it, they usually burn out and you wonder, whatever happened to so-and-so? You know, but the ones that keep doing it for 20, 30, 40 years in country music, George Strait, or Tim McGraw, or Kenny Chesney, or Reba McIntyre, born to sing, Dolly Parton, you know, those people with longevity into their careers, they love getting up on a stage and, and they still pay a price, I think, for, you know, people talking about them or they're in the... Uh, the old joke used to be, which is worse, if you're a star, which is worse, being on the cover of the National Enquirer or not being on the cover of the National Enquirer? Well, I don't know about you, Doug, but I don't want to be on the cover of the National Enquirer. 